Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of those who cannot believe Disney permitted a spooky psych ward to be featured in one of their movies. I'm Hannah Leach, a writer, musician, audio producer, and sentient flying couch. And I'm Audrey Leach, director, editor, producer, and sentient pumpkin head. <laughs> we are the sister duo, also known as Two Pink Productions, and we haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today we are talking about 1985's Return to Oz. Remember how we spoke? Not to talk about Oz. Because it's just my imagination. Just how did you get back from... Oz. You put them on, and you click the heels three times, and then you said, there's no place like home. I know you don't want to go to the doctors, but you just haven't slept the night right through since the tornado. This electrical marvel will make it possible for you to sleep again. And then, my friends are in trouble, I know it. We're in trouble, Dorothy. Isn't that a stole and lunch bail in your hand? Isn't that a chicken in there with you? Chicken! The Gnome King doesn't allow chickens anywhere in the house. Who is the Gnome King? Who is the Gnome King? <laughs> so everyone, as we get into this episode, you may be wondering to yourself, return to Oz. Have <laughs> I seen that one? I don't know her. Yes. You probably have, and once we get into it, you will have uh, frightened childhood memories flooding back into your brain. I know that's how it was for me when I was rewatching it, so just go on this journey with us. Yeah, I mean, I actually think there's going to be a probably solid amount who have not seen it. There's still an interesting discussion to be had, Mm -hmm. whether you've seen the movie or not, because we all know what the Wizard of Oz represents in culture in general. And this movie is really bringing something to the table that the classic Wizard of Oz does not. Audrey, where are you recording from today? I'm in Los Angeles in my new apartment. Yay, she made it. (laughs) And I have no furniture still. So it could be echoey. And I sleep on the ground. Do you want to ask me where I'm recording from? Hannah's in my room. (laughs) (laughs) I did successfully move to Chicago almost a week ago. That's really weird to think about. Um, But then I had to come back for a friend's wedding. So I am currently sitting in 
quote unquote Audrey's room in in our parents' house. I'm using Josh's um like streamer microphone clamp thing on this desk, which honestly I think I might get because this is incredible. And now that I'm going to have my own permanent setup in my office at home, this is like really good. So perhaps I'll be getting this. Also, you don't necessarily have to put this in, but I got my own, my, I got my first Zoom recorder today. So I finally have this too, which I'm really excited about. Okay. Question for the culture this week. The culture is super sick right now. It's actually really bad, period. It's moving themed considering both of our current life states are we pro big goodbye or pro subtly slipping out of town for example say your friend would really want you to have a going away party or like your friend really wants like a solid mark of like you're leaving this town or whatever yeah and you don't really care i kind of think that like it's just nice to give that to them because you're friends. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you should. Yeah, you yeah, should. Yeah, yeah. Like, even if you don't like being the center of attention, like if that's your worst nightmare is is doing that for yourself or whatever. I think that, I mean, you're not going to die. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. Well, and that, that's why I tend to be like, I'd prefer to slip out in the dead of night just because I find goodbyes to be really dramatic especially with the internet being the way it is like you and I talk more than I talk to many people and we haven't lived in the same city in years so I think that's part of it and also like we're both pretty like emotional people and so having to like you know go through all of the like emotional hoops of that It's just like not a fun way to celebrate having lived in a place. I will say yesterday, Josh's cousin and his wife, who are our really good friends, threw us a really nice going away party that was like just family, but they have a pool and it was really cute. And I enjoyed that. I will say though, Audrey, do you remember how much I like slipped out under the cover of darkness when I left New York? In my memory, it was kind of like you also didn't know if you were coming back or not. So it 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 wasn't I'm moving and I'm not coming back. It was more like uh, I'm going to go regroup. Like I didn't I just don't yeah. think that anybody thought anything too dramatic about that. Um, plus, everybody kind of leaves at the end of college. Everybody goes somewhere for at least a bit. I feel like. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then one thing led to another and I never came back except to visit. And honestly, I'm not mad about it. After this week, I will be recording in Chicago. I'm so excited to be in Chicago. If you are a listener and you live there, let me know. If you're someone from high school who listens to this and I haven't heard from you in a million years, let me know. Uh, Shout out to Kristen Capusta for sending me $25. I've talked to a few listeners who live in LA or surrounding areas, so same. Okay, so... Let's discover information about Return to Oz. Return to Oz was released by Disney somehow inexplicably on June 21st, 1985, and it is rated PG. Synopses. First one is from IMDb. Dorothy, saved from a psychiatric experiment by a mysterious girl, is somehow called back to Oz when a vain witch and the gnome king destroy everything that makes the magical land beautiful. 
Letterboxed. Dorothy, saved from a psychiatric experiment by a mysterious girl, finds herself back in the land of her dreams and makes delightful new friends and dangerous new enemies. Finally, Rotten Tomatoes. Dorothy discovers she is back in the land of Oz and finds the yellow brick road is now a pile of rubble and the Emerald City is in ruins. Discovering that the magical land is now under the control of an evil empire, she sets off to rescue the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion with the help of her new friends. And we have some rather ill-fitting taglines here. There's four taglines. The first one is an all-new adventure down the yellow brick road. I mean, we just learned it was rubble, so not really. Um, Right. Second, it's an all-new live-action fantasy filled with Disney adventure and magic. They really fucking tried it there. They're like, yeah. Yeah. It is Disney. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to think it is, but it is. The third one, if there's one thing you must do this summer, it's return to Oz. (laughs) And lastly, return to the land where the adventure began. That are just, like, not threatening enough to fit the movie, in my opinion. But, I mean, it's... I mean, they weren't going to be threatening. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe if they had been threatening, they would have ended up doing better financially, considering what this thing actually is. But we'll get to that. The director of this film was Walter Murch, which really, really surprised me when I saw that because he is known mostly as an editor and a re-recording mixer and like a sound designer. And in film school, I read one of his books called In In the Blink of an Eye, which is about, Mm -hmm. it's about the art form of editing, but it had me remembering like what was in that book and kind of like the main takeaway or one of the main like concepts that he teaches in that book is about the six criteria that justify making a cut, like, in, in, which is interesting. Those six things, if you were curious, are emotion, story, rhythm, eye trace, two-dimensional plane of screen, and three-dimensional space of action. Those are the six tenets of what he's referring to. And this, this little quote from him kind of like explains what those things mean. He says, what I'm suggesting is a list of priorities. If you have to give up something, don't ever give up emotion before story. Don't give up story before rhythm. Don't give up rhythm before eye trace. Don't give up eye trace before planarity. And don't give up planarity before spatial continuity. So it's kind of just like, the hierarchy of needs of like how you should prioritize making cuts. That's kind of- That's really interesting. Yeah. So he's very knowledgeable and he's worked on some of the biggest, most famous movies ever. He was in the sound department on The English Patient, The Conversations, Apocalypse Now, The Godfather Part 2 and 3. And shockingly, maybe it's not that shocking, but he only ever directed this film and a single episode of Star Wars Clone Wars, the TV show. So actually, Walter Murch was fired a week into directing Return to Oz because Disney executives were not into the dailies. They thought he was going to take too long to shoot it. And so when he got fired, he contacted his friends, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and Coppola. George Lucas. I know. I was like, I thought it was Coppola, but then I got tripped up and I said it wrong. So you can throw me in jail for that one. He basically like begged them to 
help him win Disney back. And so he did that and it worked. And even though that strategy worked, the executives had little faith in the movie and ultimately doomed it with limited promotion and a short theatrical run. So sad for Walter, but he continued to slay his career. So at the very least, there is that. It's been said that editors are good at directing because they know what's going to happen at the end of this process and they know what they actually need to capture. And also I feel like most editors are like more introverted. So like there's there's just more of like a emotional intelligence, I feel like anyway, but I am biased. <laughs> um, I feel like he really got the shit end of the stick with all this, but we'll talk more about that later. Walter Murch is a very special man. I mean, I'm, I'm still in touch with him and... He's, he's got to be one of the most interesting, wonderful people that anyone could ever be directed by because he's very sensitive. He's one of the greatest editors ever. You know, he teaches editing all around the world, sound editing and picture editing. So he has a very interesting way of, of perception, you know, and was brilliant working with me as a kid because he could think the way that I did. Instead of having an adult thinking here and a child thinking here, he put himself into my mind so that he could see things like on a par, which really helped me. So the screenplay was written by Walter, as well as Gil Dennis, who is known for his work on Walk the Line, On My Own, and Without Evidence. And of course, the original author of the Wizard of Oz series is L. Frank Baum. A little bit of interesting information. So Return to Oz is based on the second and third of L. Frank Baum's Oz books, The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. Elements from the former include the introduction of Jack Pumpkinhead, the witch Mombi and her powder of life, the conquest of the Emerald City, the escape by flying sofa, and the search for Princess Ozma. From the latter comes the return of Dorothy, the talking chicken Belina, the wheelers, the discovery of TikTok, a princess with interchangeable heads, the introduction of the Gnome King, and the ornament room. So pretty much all of those random elements are actually from Baum's work, which is really cool. And it just feels like a pretty faithful adaptation of the original source text, which obviously the 1939 version that we love was not. I just wrote down these two other credits that I thought were interesting. We had Zoran Perisic in charge of visual effects, and then Norman Reynolds was the production designer. He is the production designer, was the production designer on Bicentennial Man, Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Invaders of the Lost Ark, as well as Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. So very like 80s, 90s, campy stuff. It makes sense to me. I think we should also shout out David Shire, the composer, because in all the like reviews or like things that I've seen about this movie while researching today, everyone was like obsessed with the soundtrack. Okay, so for the cast, it's a little confusing because there aren't that many on screen people. <laughs> people. There's a lot of like voice actors. I will say that the voice of the scarecrow is. Uh, the son of Jim Henson. So that feels cool in like a puppetry sense. But really the actor that 
is by far the most in the spotlight in this movie is Feruza Balk as Dorothy. She was 10 years old when they shot this movie. It was her first screen role, like her first on-screen role. And of course, she's best known for playing Nancy in The Craft. She was also in Worst Witch, Almost Famous, and American History X. First of all, I went to a cattle call in Vancouver, which is like 300 children. And then they cut it down to 12 girls, brought us all out to... uh, L.A. did more screen tests, then it got down to two girls, and we went to London, and then it got down to one girl, which was me. She's really scary looking, not so much in this movie. She kind of has like a, like Helena Bonham Carter thing in that she always looks a little bit goth, like no matter what she does, which makes her such a good choice for all of like the witchy movies. We appreciate that about her. And then Jean Marsh played Mom B., Deep Roy (laughs) acted as the Tin Man, which if I see Deep Roy credited in anything, I'm putting him in. He was the person who played all of the Oompa Loompas in the Johnny Depp, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Just everyone was so random. Like, I didn't even write them all down because I looked at their credits and I was like, I have no idea what this is. And I don't know if any of our listeners will. Budget. 28 million. On opening weekend, it made 2,844,895 and the worldwide gross is 11 million. Oof. 11,137,801. Not the best. Not the best. I will say that the disparity between the budget and the worldwide gross and the kind of lack of overall knowledge of the movie, but the really passionate sub- genre that this movie is. Um, It falls into the same category as The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth with David Bowie. And those definitely fall into like the cult classic genre. And I would say, even though this, uh, they're not quite at the same time, but it reminds me so much of the Tina Alice in Wonderland too. I know. Like they're very similar. They're all in the same category. Desaturated, weird little girls and adventures and everyone's scary. Yeah. And everything's like practical. Like a lot of it is practical. Yes. Which I really love practical choices. Critics score 58%. And the critic consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is Return to Oz taps into the darker side of L. Frank Baum's book series with an intermittently dazzling adventure that never quite recaptures the magic of its classic predecessor. Well, guess what? Yeah. I I have a lot to say about that. Yeah, that's really what we're going to end up talking about the most, I think. Yeah. Critic opinions. Firstly, it's bleak, creepy, and occasionally terrifying. Studio pressure apparently forced Merch to back off from the full fury of his conception, but this is still strong stuff. Secondly, having read 11 of the 14 original Oz books, including the two this movie was based on, I found it a perfect and fairly accurate combination of the second and third book in the Oz series. Can we just get some applause for that? I mean, no one's doing that anymore. Yeah. Accurate adaptations. Yes. And then thirdly, Return to Oz is a fantastic horror movie for children. (laughs) Witches that can remove their heads, mutated rollerblading punks, evil rocks that spy on you, ghosts trapped in mirrors, electric shock therapy. This is scary stuff for kids, but not too scary. However, making it an excellent treat. The idea of it being a fantastic horror movie for children, just, it's so accurate. Yeah. And it kind of goes along with that. We've talked about this before, but 
the assumption that children don't like horror as a as a whole mm-hmm. is not accurate. The fact that a movie like this gets so shat on because parents deem it too scary or not what they want it to be doesn't mean that it's not that children won't love it. Like it's just not your taste, but there are lots of kids who like horror. I just love the idea of like there's young adult fiction and there can be young adult horror. Like, I just think that that's a really cool idea. So, okay, I picked all of these really kind reviews because when I went to look up Roger Ebert's review, at this time, he was still doing TV reviews with Siskel. So I watched their review and they ripped this thing apart. They said that two hours of their lives were stolen. I'll always resent that it stole two hours of my life. (laughs) When I'm dying, I want you to know if you're at my funeral, I want you to know I'll be there thinking, I could have lived two years, two hours longer, happier. I'll say a few words over your grave. He would have had two hours more happiness that hadn't been for a return to Oz. Thank you very much. This was supposed to be the film that was more true to the Oz books. But they made changes from the book it was based on. And they still made a trashy picture, a trashy-looking film with none of the joys of the classic Judy Garland Oz film. They said they liked The Hen the most, which is a red flag, and that it was not an upbeat children's film. Well, I'm sure that they were rewarded as reviewers for having a more strong opinion. You know, it's like yeah. You, yeah. No, nobody would have wanted them to have like a middle-of-the-road take Yes. So now Common Sense Media, I felt like this little description will help jog the memory of a lot of people if they haven't seen it yet. So, okay, here is what Common Sense Media had to say. They rated it two out of five stars and said that it was appropriate for ages 10 and up. They said, 1985 follow-up to the classic musical is tin-eared and creepy. Parents need to know that Return to Oz is nowhere near as whimsical nor fantastical nor fantastic as the Judy Garland classic. It has a gloomier, spookier look and feel, though it does have heart. Dorothy, as in the first movie, is as sweet as ever. Children eight and younger will likely find it disturbing, especially if they're fans of the original. Some scenes show an Oz that's fallen apart, dominated by a headless princess and vengeful stony king. The way they go after Dorothy is a freaky, nerve-wracking sight to behold. (laughs) They're not wrong. It's just true. Okay, audience score was 71% and the Letterboxd average star rating is 3.4 stars. Sort of redeeming, honestly. Mm 3.4 is not too bad. Audience opinions, five stars. Cult classic, one of the best films in the world. And then (laughs) someone gave it half a star and said, what the shitting fuck? Question mark, exclamation point. Five stars, bizarre classic, absolute must see. Three stars, you know what I love in my sequel to the happiest and most beloved musical of all time? Misery. (laughs) (laughs) And then three stars, hard to imagine any kid watching this and not being deeply upset. I really found the reviews so extreme on either end and also just really funny. Like a lot of the time when I go look at these reviews, it's people making the same joke over and over again. But people had very specific things to say about this movie, which I thought was really funny. And I also just wanted to mention in the grand tradition of many of the cult classics that we have covered on this show, similar to The Tenth Kingdom, similar to Swan Princess. There is a very active and relatively small fan community for this movie. 
well, okay, so there's a fan-made documentary called Remembering Return to Oz, which is like in progress, I think. And it's them interviewing all these different like cast members and crew people. There's also a Remembering Return to Oz Facebook fan page. I looked at it today and the last thing they posted was two days ago and it was an AI-generated Walt Disney head saying what they think Walt Disney would have said about Return to Oz had he been alive. I thought they were both terrific. Feruza Balk's energy and enthusiasm brought Dorothy to life while Emma Ridley had just the right touch of magic to make Ozma come alive. Both of them created truly memorable performances and it was a pleasure working with them. So the people that are into it are highly into it and they are out there. <laughs> I love finding those sorts of fan communities, so. If you're one of those people, hi, and I appreciate you. <laughs> Welcome to the pod. <laughs> yeah. When was the first time we watched this movie? What do we remember about it? Audrey, is it true that you didn't remember this one? I don't remember it, no, but I do remember our sole memory of the movie. Okay, so... My main memory of this movie is that, okay, go back in time to 2001, 2002 maybe, but probably 2001. We were living in Boston and our dad was in grad school at MIT and there were these really big parties that his like cohort would throw. It was like maybe like 50 adults and their families. We hosted one of these parties in like our little rental house one day and it was an adult party. So mom was like, okay, like you guys can hang out upstairs. Like she got us a bunch of snacks. She got us a movie we hadn't seen before and put like a little TV in our room, which we were not allowed to have TVs in our rooms when we were kids, which is funny because now mom and dad have a giant flat screen TV in their room. So times have changed. The movie mom picked out was Return to Oz. And so we were like laying in our little twin beds and we were watching this movie and we got through the whole psych ward part. I think it was weirdly when The Rock, like the first time you see like one of The Rock guys talking to the king and you just see the face of The Rock, I got up and I turned it off. <laughs> I was like, we can't handle this because I was freaked out. But also Audrey was still like a pretty anxious kid, too. So I was like, I mean, I was a baby. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, like, she was in preschool. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, if I can't handle this, Audrey definitely can't handle this. So let's turn this off. So we turned it off. But then I remember like laying there in the dark being like, oh, God, that was horrible. And then mom told me, I didn't remember this part, but mom told me that we came downstairs yeah. in our pajamas and we were in first grade in preschool. And then we just like kind of walked around <laughs> in the party and then someone's mom like found us and then like grabbed our mom and was like, Jenny, go deal with this. Yeah. And so she did. And I just remember turning off the movie and then laying there in the dark. And it was super loud downstairs because all of those adults were there. And it was just like the hum of the party, you know, Audrey and I like stuck in our room. And it was so creepy. Like the elements I remembered that freaked me out were obviously being in the psychiatric institution. That was scary. I remembered the like electroshock therapy part, even though I hadn't seen this movie, I think since and I was in, in first grade. I don't think you ever saw it in its entirety. Definitely didn't. But I had seen the queen changing heads. I had seen the wheelers before. Like I, I wrote down before I rewatched it, I wrote down sliding thing question mark. 
And yeah, I had vague ideas. I remembered like the first 45 minutes, I would say, which makes sense because that's when we turned it off. It's not like deeply nostalgic for us, but I feel like what's interesting about this movie is very relevant to today's culture also in just in terms of like when an adaptation doesn't match what the audience has in mind, the reaction is usually extremely negative and yeah. it's not fair. And I feel like this was set up to fail, but there's like a lot of interesting and cool elements to it that make it worth watching. But I think because of all the negativity around it, it's like, oh, this movie must not be good. Honestly, I kind of want to watch it again. Now that I know what I'm in for, it makes me yeah. want to watch it again. Yeah, so it is on Disney+. Plus, and if you haven't seen it, and, you know, it might be like a great, like, high watch, honestly. Um, I was I'm thinking sure about that, <laughs> but then I was like, or, it might or be too bad. scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll either be really good or really bad. Um, yeah. But... It's definitely nothing like the 1939 film, so don't... <laughs> it could not be more different. It could don't not expect be more that. different. Do not expect that. And also, like, survivor group for people like us who loved The Wizard of Oz, and then their parents were like, here's a sequel, and then you watch it, and it's like the scariest shit of your <laughs> child life. Like, we're here now to hold you. <laughs> I'm almost sad that, like, we had that reaction, though, because... There all the like fans are like, it's actually not scary. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like the all beginning. the all the really passionate fans in all the comment sections that I've been reading, they're all like, no, like it's not scary. It's beautiful. I mean, <laughs> it can be both. They're yeah. not mutually exclusive. <laughs> all right, go watch this movie and meet us here for a discussion. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome back, everyone. We are about to talk about 1985's Return to Oz. Very creepy, unless you're in the hardcore fandom. Then it is a tonally peaceful, artistic <laughs> journey through the mind of Walter Munch. Merch. Walter Munch sounds like a character in Annie. Isn't it Mr. Munch? Isn't that the dad? I only remember Mr. Bundles. <laughs> Wait, that also reminds me. And then I promise we'll talk about Return to Oz. When we were driving the U-Haul to Chicago, I lost like all morale, like 70% of the way there. And then we stopped and got a snack. And then I was like, you gotta play the 90s Annie soundtrack. And then I just like sang through all of it. And then I felt better. All of those songs are like perfect. 
And I feel like we don't talk about it enough as a culture. They're so good. This is not a musical that we're talking about today, though, to the dismay of many people. Why don't you break the bottle of champagne on the side of this discussion? For me, I think what I was thinking about throughout most of the movie was like, I'm really curious about what the framing device is for Dorothy in the books. Because Mm -hmm. in the movie, in the original film, it's definitely that she hit her head (laughs) and... Um, gets knocked out, basically. It's not saying anything about Dorothy's mental state or her character. She she, yeah. she just got hit on the head. It was an accident. But in yes. this movie, Dorothy has got some gr- greater issues. <laughs> um, yeah. The exposition right at the beginning is so funny because I was like, why did the mom just say... Um, it's been six months since the tornado. Oh, thank you so much for that information. <laughs> it's really not her mom. It's her aunt, to which I say, yeah. why don't we ever find out what happened to her parents? I, I mean, I think I'm all of saying. these answers definitely exist. <laughs> and I kind of wish know. that we it had makes me like, read the a book expert with us here. So just forgive yeah. us for not knowing, because I'm sure a lot of the questions we will be asking have answers. Um, We're just dumb, so we didn't do that. But you know what? I'm going to (laughs) write down these questions and I'll find out after. Here's my question, though. This is what I wrote. You you can respond to this. There's something interesting to be said about, like, what would actually be diagnosed as a mental disorder being a child's special power and portrayed as a good thing in movies when they would be ostracized in real life. As a child watching her and knowing that she's actually, you know, she is actually seeing these things and the par- the adults can't see it. And so yeah. as a child, it's very much like, oh, she, like, <laughs> these adults suck and what they're doing to her sucks and you know she's valid basically yeah but it's like the film's um way of portraying hallucinations i don't really know yeah because as okay because that whole opening goes on i mean i really enjoyed the opening but it goes on for a weirdly long time it's like 25 minutes before she gets to oz kind of like buying the adult's perspective at one point because i was like well, did she really go to Oz? Honestly, was it all just a weird dream? Like, we know that she experienced those things, at least psychologically, but she may not have actually experienced them. To me, it's more like they're like, you're being annoying as hell. We're sending you off to the bin more than anything else. I also thought it was funny that she was like, Aunt Em was like, you don't sleep through the night and then you're no use to me in the morning. <laughs> that, <laughs> like, that also was an ADR line. Like I was I was watching her. Oh, really? Yeah, I was watching her jaw like when that line was being said and that line was definitely not what she said initially. So I, I don't know. Well, they probably needed to add that in to add maybe a little more justification for why they were taking her there. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to that conversation, though, because there's so many examples of movies where the child, the protagonist child has 
powers, like Matilda vibes. Like, But at least with Matilda, it's like she's doing something that has no real life equivalent. Like yes. there is yes. no moving things with your mind equivalent on Earth. Yeah. But with Dorothy, it's like she has like a mental disorder or something. Like, I mean, but is it ever framed as like her special ability? I would argue yes. You know, it's not it's not to the effect of Matilda. Like it's not that um it's not like there's a huge group of children like applauding her do when she does this thing. Like, whereas Matilda, she's got her classmates who are, like, here for it and stuff. No, I, I'm just thinking about, like, the children in the actual audience of the movie. Yes, like, okay. It's like, I'd be watching her and I'd be like, ugh, like, life is so unfair. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's being unfairly punished when just because the adults can't see what she sees type of thing, which happens a yeah. lot in children's movies because it's always about like how the children are in touch with their imagination and the adults aren't. It's like a superiority thing almost, like a way to give children some power Yeah, when they really don't have any. So I think that is like a powerful like tool to give children. But in this particular case, it's just funny because... <laughs> She's seeing shit and the mom or her aunt is, she's not like awful. No. Like her, she's just kind of boring and strict, but she's not like terrible. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't know. I'm like hesitating to compare it to the original, but I think that she doesn't have very much power in the movie, but she doesn't really seem to care about it all that much like she's kind of just like vibing and like trying I don't know just running around and talking about Oz all day long so when she is sent it's almost like she's sent back to Oz and her goal is to like prove that it still exists like in the beginning it feels like her goal is to prove that it still exists then she gets there and it's like okay it still exists (laughs) and then I just find myself through the rest of it like what is the point of this like like it feels so much like a dream because technically she's like saving her friends Mm -hmm. but the weird thing is that it's like the tin man the scarecrow and the lion but they're like not even in it her yeah they're not in it and it's like you're referencing something that you never saw a on screen. A past dream. It's like a past dream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like a dream that picks up where the last one left off, but you didn't see the first one. And I can understand, like, from an audience perspective, why, based off of probably the misleading marketing that they saw, why you would go into this and be like, what the hell? Because it kind of implies the existence of a remake of The Wizard of Oz. Because, like, that's what it probably should have been is, like, there was a remake that was more, that was a non-musical and was a more strict adaptation of the book, the first book, and then come in for this one rather than just going straight from 1939 musical to this, which would be... A little shocking if you yeah. were ready and for coming it. from Disney of all yeah. all places. Yeah, I just want to read off a couple things that struck me as funny. First of all, the really unsettling chicken puppet. One of my favorite parts of the entire movie was when the pumpkin head guy asked if he could call Dorothy mommy, and then just proceeds to call her mom. <laughs> That was one of my questions yeah. in, uh, that I wrote was like, 
what do we make of this? Like, what do we make of that whole thing? (laughs) Well, I feel like what we were supposed to get from that is that, like, later on, it becomes clear that Ozma... Chosen family. <laughs> well, it's funny because that's what people say about the first Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that it's about chosen family. So same about this. Ozma shows up and he's like, that's my real mom. So there's some sort of duality suggested between little Ozma, who barely exists, and Dorothy. But again, it feels like a dream. So it's never fully connected. It's almost like you assume it. Series of unfortunate events came way after this and is probably kind of inspired by it. But it was reminding me of series of unfortunate events, just like the aesthetic and like how grim everything seems and just like bad times for the children. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. I wrote down here the creepy music choices. And now that I said that, I do understand what I was talking about. Like there's a lot of really weird, like marching band sounding music throughout different sections. That's really unsettling. And it does definitely suggest a specific mood. Appreciated that. I love all the rock people. It They look really cool. Also when the wheelers come out and you're just seeing the front of the guy's helmet and it looks like a scary mask that like actually made my heart skip a beat while mm-hmm. watching it yesterday. I would like a lunch pail bulb. Looks like a good time. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked it up. In the book there is no dream. She, it's not yeah. a dream. <laughs> In the book. Yeah. That does not surprise me. <laughs> Yeah, the the framing device is so real in the movies. I wrote, at the midpoint, I have sort of lost the plot. Yeah, I was struggling. I was struggling to know what was going on. And like, it's kind of the same in Alice in Wonderland, though, because it's like, you don't know. You're not. It's just pure nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Did the green ornament thing remind you of Horcruxes? (laughs) Now that you pointed out, definitely yes, but it did not occur to me at the time. Yeah, they just like, so the, at, near the end of the movie, like the climax is there, she's trying to find her her friends that have been turned into green ornaments. That whole concept was so weird and dreamlike too, as a separate note. Yeah, and, and the evil guy is like banking on the fact that she's not going to be able to do it, to do it. And then she does do it. And it's just, oh, it's very uncanny valley that this whole thing. Yes. And that's the thing with the puppets is that to me, they're really, really cool, but they're almost not that puppet like. And so it's a little confusing at times. It's like hard to appreciate the puppetry all the way because you're like, is that a puppet or what am I really looking at? Well, they did. They used a combination of puppetry and then like people in costumes. So that's why you've got that back and forth in your head of like, how animate is this thing? Yes. That also reminds me that inside of TikTok, which by the way, of course, I know TikTok, um, <laughs> there was a human gymnast. Yeah, I, I heard that. that was like contorted inside. His back is like fully bent over and his feet are inside TikTok's feet. I don't understand how he did it. But it, even in that video with Feruza trying to explain it, I was like, I have no idea. I need someone to like demonstrate it for me. Michael Sundin, who played TikTok, had to spend long stretches at a time in this position with his knees slightly bent in an awkward and uncomfortable way. There was no way for him to be able to see anything and he had to be led around based on sounds. But all of this is kind of amazing as well. 
As upsetting and uncanny as the wheelers are, doing this actually took legitimate skill and ingenuity to pull off. What did she think of this little blonde girl? I was really confused by her at first. I actually thought at the very beginning that it may have been a reference to Through the Looking Glass, the Alice in Wonderland sequel. And then she ended up being Ozma in the end. And I was like, oh, so she's the queen of Oz. So would she have gotten Dorothy to Oz to then save Oz? Why couldn't Ozma do it? But I guess that's kind of the whole point. Yeah. But I liked her final look. She looked amazing. Yeah. She looked so good. So in the end with that crowd scene, first of all, I loved looking around in that scene. It was like, where's Waldo? But secondly, when she like had to say goodbye to everyone, you know how in the last one she says goodbye to the three guys? Mm -hmm. Um, In this one I wrote down, that's a lot of dudes to say goodbye to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because she's going around to like all of these dudes. And I'm like, why are they all men? But also... Am I gendering TikTok? Yeah, I guess I am. He's male-coded. He's very much male-coded. Sorry. He He's like old man-coded. He is old man-coded. Why are the the friends or like the buddies of the young girl always like just old dudes? <laughs> like they're just... Because it's creepy. Like it Alice in Wonderland. Even she doesn't have like- any allies. <laughs> Yeah, right. But like the people she comes upon are there are some women, but like it's usually just like the villain. Yeah. Yeah. The villain will be a woman and then everyone else is an old guy. Kooky old guys and then evil lady. I I do want to talk about we could maybe this is like our last our last topic of this. But what um, the takeaway is for films like this, like Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, where you've got seemingly inexplicable things happening and there's not necessarily always like a clear more well like there's not always like clarity and they're not going to preach to you so like the question of what you're supposed to take away from that and should you be looking for that like should you be looking for concrete lessons i feel like the way those stories are set up is that they're supposed to be like little parables almost but when you think about them especially with Alice in Wonderland like it doesn't actually really say anything because it's more of like a satire of English society than it is like about growing up really all that much I feel like the only growing up element of it is like surviving a weird journey like other than that though it's like these are the weird people you encounter in life it isn't anything super concrete but then with the Wizard of Oz I think at least okay this is an interpretation of the 1939 movie which is probably way more saccharine than the actual book but like you the whole point of that movie is like you have the virtue within you to be able to achieve anything you want whereas in this one (laughs) when it ended and this the the titles start coming in and she's just like running around in her yard i'm like i have absolutely (laughs) no idea what she got from that at all there's value to that too Like, the books that these films are based on are kind of, like, the musings of, like, not, like, a middle-aged man (laughs) type of thing. No, but I mean... So, I think that 
I wish I knew more about him and his life. There's so many meaningless experiences in life or like things that just seemed random or hallucinatory things that yeah. are kind of unexamined in the human experience. Or a lot, I feel like a lot of times, just say with dreams, for example, people tend to keep their dreams to themselves um, because you either forget them really fast and you can't verbalize it or you don't want to like reveal your psyche to people in that way. A lot of people think hearing about dreams is boring, which I don't get, but a lot of people do think that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what these stories are. It's just like an exploration of like the, the dream version of a child's life. Also, I think the point about the stories being written by like adult men is really interesting because it's like, adult men sharing their perspective on life through the channel of putting a young girl through different forms of psychological torture. That's just kind of funny to think about. I mean, that's like 85% of horror <laughs> in a nutshell, horror movies. That too. That is <laughs> yeah. definitely true. The torture that happens mostly to women in horror films and like it's almost always written by men. It is yeah. like very... It's something that I feel like society as a whole has kind of just accepted without a whole lot of thought. I don't mm -hmm. know what that's about. Like, why with horror, it's like, oh, it's okay because... It's like being framed as a bad thing because it's like horror. Yeah, or because it's like, you know, it's like going on a roller coaster. You know, like like they're like... Yeah, it's about like the thrill of it in a different category, like the yeah. filmmakers don't mean it type of thing. And I think, or like that doesn't shed anything about them. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that they would be violent or that they have like violent minds, if you will. But they don't not. <laughs> I just, yeah, I think it's really interesting that like on the whole, it feels like those those dudes have been like spared from any like further thought. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it kind of reminds me of like, and this might not be like appropriate, but this is, it makes me think about how in adult content, let me just say how people can get away with like really, really dated, like content labels or like violence or, mm -hmm things that would be like disturbing out of the context that it's in but because it is this medium that most people deem as like dirty or like shameful or whatever like yeah it's like we can just go buck wild and like let it be as like mm -hmm. crass or like de demoralizing as someone's like core id wants it to be like how men's core id wants yeah. it to be it's because yeah. in both in both categories that we're talking about it's because it's so steeped in like the genrefication of itself that mm -hmm. um it's like the actual identities of the people who create it they can be deemed irrelevant to yeah. the product it's like well it's not really about it doesn't say anything about me it's just this is what we do like this is just what this is you know yeah but um, like why do you want to do it well i guess from like a cap from like a capitalist perspective, it's like we do it because it makes money. We do it because it's expected. We do it because, mm -hmm. you know, you could come up with a lot of reasons that don't have to do with because that's what I want. 
But yeah, if it sells, if if the reasoning is it sells, then it is what you want. It's what the people want at like their like whatever you just said id. You're like id yeah. core. Like yeah. there's just some like lizard brain thing going on. No, it's like it's like a it's like a carnivorous thing. It's like an animalistic thing where it's like you want to yeah. see people like beheaded or like shamed in the public square. It's like the same reason why people like seeing people get like destroyed online or like canceled or whatever. We are so hilariously off the beaten path, but like it's relevant to I think you guys would want to hear this. Like it all comes back to like the socialization of the genders, like violence being valorized, like a take charge attitude being valorized. Honestly, I feel like in a lot of ways, like a right, this is like so much, but like the role of being like a writer director is so occupied by men, like for a reason. And it's because other men are in charge, but also like having such control and like strict vision over how something should go is just feels like a man thing to me a little bit. Wow. I don't Whoa. even know how we got there, but. Whoa. It's because I'm we were talking about, about psychological torture of young female protagonists in movies like this. I don't know. That's really difficult. I Again, I wish I knew more about the author because that usually like means a lot about it changes my opinion. I'm pretty sure that he was like a normal guy. He was a father. Seems kind of like he had four children. He was married to one woman his whole life. And here's a little bit about him that is funny. He had a flair for being in the spotlight of fun in the household. His selling of fireworks made the 4th of July memorable. Christmas was even more festive. He dressed as Santa Claus for the family. His father would place the Christmas tree behind a curtain in the front parlor so that Baum could talk to everyone while he decorated the tree without people managing to see him. He maintained this tradition all of his life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he produced a bunch of theater, even when uh, it did not necessarily pan out for him financially. He started his own film production company. He died pretty young. Bomb's Beliefs. A traditional element that Baum intentionally omitted from his stories was the emphasis on romance. He considered romantic love to be uninteresting to young children, as well as largely incomprehensible. In The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the only elements of romance lay in the background of the Tin Woodman and his love for Nimi Ami, which explains his condition but does not affect the tale in any other way, and the background of Gaelette and the Enchantment of the Winged Monkeys so on and so forth but basically he was like i don't care about that also he was a women's suffrage advocate his edith van dyne who was like a different character stories depict girls and young women engaging in traditionally masculine activities he also wrote the bluebird books that uh feature a girl sleuth we're getting to racial views let's just be careful Baum wrote two editorials asserting that the safety of white settlers depended on the wholesale genocide of American Indians. Yeah, people debate whether or not he was being sarcastic. Seems like most people think he wasn't. So you know what? We had a uh, we had a good run there, but unfortunately, we had to uh, dive into a ditch at the very end. I just okay. I'm on. <laughs> The Royal Blog of Oz. Someone named Jay wrote this. So let's address the issue again. Was L. Frank Baum a racist? Yes. 
Was his expression of racism allowed at the time because of the society he lived in? Yes. Did that make it okay? No. Many critics of Baum are aware of his editorials in which he suggested the military should exterminate the remaining members of the Sioux Nation. Readers of his works outside of the Oz books are aware of many ethnic stereotypes in his works. A few of his works even use the N-word. Baum relied Whoa. on these to depict characters of color in his fiction, as did many other writers of his time. These reveal that while Baum was progressive in his views of gender and other areas, race was one where he was not so enlightened. I do believe that Baum was attempting to depict a more accurate depiction of the American people in using non-white characters. However, his use of stereotypes is troubling because stereotypes depict an inaccurate, duh, we know, uh, an accurate yeah. picture of the people being described. It's, it sounds as though he would call himself a feminist. So oh, obviously sure. of his time, not now. But um, yeah. that's very interesting. What do I even make of that? This whole thing is just really, really wild. I, I don't know if we've done any justice I for think- it. That going into it, I was like, okay, this is going to be really scary and really, like, unsettling. And it did achieve that. But also, I wrote down at the end, was that an art film to myself? Because it does so... Yeah, it does so little explaining to you. And there's so many, like, different types of art involved in it. Especially with Mm -hmm. all of, like, the practical effects and, like, the sculpture and the puppetry and everything. Like... It is, it could be half an hour shorter easily, but it's very entertaining. I watched it with Josh and the whole time, anytime anything notable happened, he just said, this movie rocks. (laughs) And it kind of does rock. Yeah. I think one of the sadder aspects of this whole thing is that the fact that it like was a disappointment financially actually is what stopped Walter Murch from directing more. Like, and this is somebody who is one of the most respected, like, people in Hollywood, you know, in terms of their craft. Like, he's at the top of his game, not in his heyday. And so the fact that they (laughs) shat on him so hard, I just hate to see it. Because I, I watched this little interview thing with him and he was like, I had all these ideas for what I could do next and what what I learned on this movie that I could take to the next and just like he was ready like he was raring to go. I know. I watched it too. I was surprised uh I was discombobulated by the fact that when the film came out people said this is an extremely terrifying disturbing film, which was not my intention. I wanted it to engage the audience fully, and I wanted Dorothy to be in desperate situation. But I, the anguish of many of the reviews and some of the comments that I got from the film were, was surprising to me. You, you can't second guess the reviewer, that's what they say. And in fact, that was the brush that was that tarred the film, that it was a overly dour and frightening film for children, and that I was some kind of molester of children because of the film. It was a a crisis of a kind, because I, I had ultimately enjoyed working on the film, despite the 
being fired from it in the middle and uh, the difficulties in making any film, I thought I learned a lot on this film and I wanted to then apply what I had learned to directing other films. The fact that Walter Murch got ran out of town, you know, got like ran out of directing because of this one fumble, which kind of wasn't his fault. Like, it seems like he was set up to fail in terms of the box office. And people just being closed-minded. There's no more clear demonstration of like closed-minded executives than what Disney does now. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like the, um, like the mode of storytelling and like, you know, even if they're telling a quote, diverse story, it's gonna hit all the same story beats. It's going to yeah. be exactly what you think it's gonna be. And it's going to be called something. It's going to be called, it's gonna have a one word title. And it's going to be really vague and it's going to be an adjective <laughs> or a noun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was also thinking about um, like all the Marvel franchises and stuff. Like it's kind of the same there too. Just like giving the people what they think the people want, but what the people don't want anymore. You know? Yeah. I did look up. Uh, Dorothy's parents that the cause for their death is never revealed but in Wicked they say that her parents died in a boating accident which is very aquamarine mm. of them yeah the Claire de Lune <laughs> she goes that's my parents <laughs> we should do a uh, an encore aquamarine episode honestly <laughs> Is Return to Oz a good movie I feel like the more important question is, is it worth watching? Yeah, you, you can't really say if it's good or not, because I could make arguments both ways <laughs> myself. Same. Same. Um, but is it worth watching? Yeah. Definitely worth watching. It's really creepy, but in all the best ways. And I very much appreciate its existence. Yeah, because if you think about it, like, L. Frank Baum probably would have identified a lot more with this adaptation than the 1939 film. The 1939 film falls into what was popular at the time. Yeah. And and it, it's, its number one interest is not honoring the book, per se. No. <laughs> also, the imagery and like the style falls a lot closer to illustrations that I've seen yeah, from agreed. the books. This movie was never meant to be a direct comparison to no. the 1939 movie. And you're intentionally... You're like, you're being dumb. Yeah, it's a bad faith approach if you are actually saying that. Okay. Yeah, you're being dumb on purpose. Stop. Yes. I'm speaking Would to the people of the 80s. <laughs> We're speaking directly to Roger Ebert from Beyond the Grave. Sorry. All right. I hope you enjoyed this kind of niche movie, but um, <laughs> I feel like it, after Barbie and having done a bunch of like super popular films, yeah. this was kind of an interesting foray into cult Obscure. classic territory. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, as always... <laughs> You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at tupingproductions.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at sleepover cinema and post a full video version of each episode on YouTube every Thursday. You should subscribe to our channel if you have not. Okay? Okay. You can follow Audrey at Audriana Leach on everything and you can follow me, Hannah, at Hannah Ray Leach on everything. 
You, as always, are welcome to join us on our Discord server at the link in the episode description or on evergreenpodcasts.com. We did have a bunch of people join the Discord after the Barbie episode, so it's like... Yes, we it's did. It's popping. It's popping. You can check out our merch at tupingproductions.com slash shop. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, scrunchies, pens, and more. <laughs> and if you like the show, if it brings back um, trauma from your childhood with seeing this movie and not knowing what you were getting into, share an episode with a few friends, leave us a review, and stick around for the next episode. Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, edited, and engineered by us, Hannah and Audrey Leach. Sleepover Cinema is mixed by Sean Roll Hoffman with theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Executive producer is Michael D'Aloya. Can I- Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.